this morning. We want to talk about, okay, how do we have a mission that we dedicate our lives to? You know, this week, some, some event has started that's like all over NBC, the, the Olympics or something like that. No, I love it because curling is back. <laughs> curling is the best sport ever. It is. Some of you are like, you are weird. It took you this long to know I'm weird? No, um, it's sometimes called the roaring game. How can you not like a game called the roaring game? <laughs> okay, Joe, where else do you get to throw a 42-pound rock into the house and get points for it? That's the terminology. I thought of having, you know, I like to have illustrations up here, and I have little things, and so I thought of getting a curling stone, but a set of curling stones starts at about $10,000, and so no illustration for you. <laughs> that's, that's not happening. But people are just all out for this sport. I, I think it's a, a lot like bocce ball, shuffleboard, and pool on ice. And um, just the strategy. My family and I were watching China versus the U.S. yesterday and the precision. Did you know they even take these stones, these 42-pound granite stones, and they set them on the ice for 72 hours before they play with them? Because they need to cool to the same temperature as the ice. You're like, we don't want to know this. <laughs> Otherwise, it starts to melt the ice and they don't travel straight. There are places that, that these, these curling teams go and they train for this sport for years. They go and move there and live there because not just every town has a curling arena. You're all going to watch curling this week, I know. But think about that. Think about taking a sport taking something that you're passionate about and moving to a new place just to pursue becoming better at that sport. Just to pursue being able to compete at the highest level of competition, the Olympics, in this sport. These people dedicate their lives to it. Some of these sports, as you watch the Olympics, some of these sports, these skiers and some of the others are like, yeah, we train seven, eight hours a day. Like, wow, that is dedication. And they do it for that one moment in time. One of the events I was watching yesterday, the, the guy had two runs, one of the snowboarding events, and he fell both runs. And, and you're, just, you're, you're out. You don't, get, you don't get your points. All those years of prep, and in 30 seconds, actually the first time he fell was about 10 seconds in, and it's done. Is that something worth giving your life for. And I don't mean dying for, but giving your living for, giving your energy and your passion and something that's over like that. And I'm not saying we should never have any Olympic athletes or we should never have any hobbies. But what I want to talk about today is that there is something that every believer has to give their life for, their living for, that trumps all these things. And, and, and if you think about it, you hear all these causes, right? And people giving their all for causes, you know, save the whales, save the dogs, save the cats, save the little caterpillars that cross bar. I don't know what it is, but people, we are geared to give our life to something. And I think that's built into us by the creator that because he has a plan for his people. This morning, as we talk, I hope that we see that some of those causes, while they may be worthy are just not worth giving our lives for. But the cause and the mission of Jesus Christ is. We're studying in Luke chapter 9, and I invite you to turn turn there. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one under one of the chairs right around you and those trays. We'd love for you to take that out and follow along. 
If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that as our gift to you because we want you to have God's Word, the most important book you'll ever have. But Luke chapter 9, we'll be starting at verse 1. And Jesus now is going to be to continue to train his disciples of what it means to live on mission. To what it, what it means to give your life for the cause, not just a cause. And if you remember the background over the, the last few days of, of biblical time, the last few weeks of our study, we've seen miracle after miracle where Jesus is systematically showing who he is and proving that he is the Messiah, proving that he's the Son of God. And he's been doing that largely for the disciples, although crowds are hearing. But we we saw the storm out on the sea and Jesus calmed the storm. And he proved that he has complete authority over the physical world and every circumstance we can face and we should trust him. The disciples would have seen that as only Yahweh, only God can calm the sea. We saw then that they landed and and legion came, the demoniac, the, the man with all the demons and And we saw Jesus' authority and power over sin and evil, that not even that had had even an ounce of power against him. They asked his permission. They fell down at the feet before him, and he commanded, and they obeyed. And so we don't have to fear. We can rely on God. And then last week, we saw that Jesus shows his power and his compassion beautifully mixed together with the woman with the blood disease and the little girl, the 12-year-old girl that had died. And he raised her from the dead and he healed the woman and he brought them in. And in both cases, situation where despair would ordinarily come in from our, our sinful fallen world, Jesus said, you don't have to fear. You don't have to despair. I am here. And he's been showing his authority over every area. He's been showing that he is God. Think back to Luke chapter 1. What's the purpose of Luke? Luke is writing so that you may know what you believe. And so that, that's the theme of the book, and Luke is masterful. At, he is giving evidence after evidence after evidence why we know Jesus is God. And so they've gone through this, the disciples have gone through this, and, and they're, they're getting it. They're knowing more and more, and, and, and he's bringing them on, he's leading them. He doesn't expect them to know it like this, but they're learning more and more day by day of who Jesus is, what it means that he's the Messiah, what he came to do. And so now after all this sort of classroom training, now yes, it was miracles and it was out and about, but after all this teaching, we come to a point where Jesus is going to say, okay, let's put this into practice. Let's see how much you really know. It's the classroom setting where you've gone through lecture after lecture and then the teacher sends you out and says, okay, now go do it. Now go do it. I remember in a, in a business class get, sitting through all kinds of instructions of how to analyze a company and do strategic analysis and all these things. And then for the project, we all had to put on suits and we went to a bank and met with their board. And for the next two weeks, we did this project on a real company, on a real bank. I have never been so scared as a student in my life. Because at that point, you know if you know it, right? You, you put it into practice and actually you learn a lot as you do that. When we come to Luke chapter 9, that's the setting here as Jesus calls his 12 together. And the first story we're going to see that Jesus calls his disciples to join him in his mission to proclaim the gospel and to help people. It's a twofold mission. He calls his disciples to join him in his mission to proclaim the gospel and help people. We see in verse 1 that he empowers them to ministry. 
And he called the twelve together, and the twelve is the, the twelve apostles, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now keep in mind, the reason I sort of stepped you through the stories that we've covered is they just saw him cast out demons. They just saw him cure diseases. And so he calls them together and says, okay, I have that authority, now I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you to go do my mission. And so he is empowering them to mission. Now, now probably this, this ability, this empowering is for this specific mission. Because God always gives us the ability and gives us the empowerment for what he asks us to do. It doesn't mean they had this, this authority the rest of their lives. But as they needed it to be about Jesus' work, he gave them exactly what they needed at the right time and, the right, and, and with the right ability for the task. And it says that he gave them power and authority. And and the the two different words there, power is an ability, a spiritual ability. Authority is the right to use it. And so he is delegating his authority and empowering them with what God has given him and what is needed for this ministry. Think in terms of the, the verses Joshua read this morning in worship. Jesus does the same thing in the Great Commission. And this is stepping the disciples toward the Great Commission, which becomes our mission, because as they make disciples, as they make copycats, then those people make disciples, and that has come down to us today. But in that Great Commission, Jesus starts the same way. All authority has been given. Jesus will never ask you to do something He doesn't equip you to do. He doesn't give you the power to do. If he's asking you to go talk to your neighbor about the gospel and that's burning on your heart and, and, and you're afraid to do that, and you're like, what if I don't say the right words? Do it anyway because he's going to empower you to do that. He's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the strength to do that. And we see that right from the start. He brings them in. And he doesn't just send them out powerless. He doesn't send them out to fail. He says, I have given you the power and the authority that you need. And there should be a thrill with that for them, an excitement to now go minister. He goes on in verse 2 and talks about the calling and talks about the ministry. And he sent them out. So they're sent ones, which is the, the same word that we get apostles from, sent ones, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so they're called to minister, and, and, and he's given them really a simple task. Proclaim the gospel, which is what the kingdom of God is referred to as in verse 6 proclaim the gospel and to heal or to cast out demons in in these two verses, really to love and help people, to care for their physical needs, to care for them spiritually, to care for them physically. And that's the task that he sends them out to. That's, That's what they're called to do. Sometimes we make this so hard and we make it so difficult because Jesus is still calling us to the same ministry. But we tell them about God and we love them. And that's really what it's about. You know, you've heard Fred and Cinda at their, their mission up north in Indicott. And the missions agency words this a little differently, but it's the same concept right out of this. They say, preach the word, love the people. That's what Jesus tells the twelve. You know, that, that's biblical. And that's still what he tells us. Preach the word, love the people. And so these apostles are are sent out. They're sent out in twos. We know that from the Gospel of Mark. They're going to put into practice what they've been learning. 
What did Jesus say? I will make you fishers of men. Well, they've gone through the training program. Now it's time to go fish. And so he sends them out. This is, this is an awesome, awesome example of training someone, showing them how to do something. It's an example of discipleship. Showing them how to do something and then sending them out and letting them try. I think it's very significant that this follows the teaching on who Jesus is. Because when we begin to comprehend that Jesus is God and He is the Messiah and He is everything in life and that He has died on the cross for our sins, sins we couldn't pay for, and He rose again on the third day, and He offers us salvation if we will come to Him and forgiveness of sins, when we understand that, we can't help but serve Him. We can't help but follow Him. If we're having trouble being about mission and being about His mission, I would argue we're having trouble understanding what He's done for us and who He is. And so this is part of Jesus' teaching. And it goes both ways. It's very cyclical. We also can't understand fully who God is until we step out and serve Him. As we step out and serve Him, as we take steps of faith, He reveals even more who He is. I love hearing the, the testimonies that come back from a missions trip where we've gotten out of our comfort zone, we've dedicated our lives to serving God, and people coming back with all kinds of of insight about who God is. It's not new. God has always been that. But what's happening is because they stepped out on mission, God is using that to teach and train. He's going to do that with the disciples. In fact, later in this, we're going to see that they come back and they want to talk about it and debrief because they they see who God is as they serve Him. The story goes on in verse 3. It says, And he said to them, and this has to do with his provision, he said to them, Take nothing for your journey. Now, if you're one of the, the disciples, and you're like, Okay, let's go. You've given me power. You've given authority. And the next thing Jesus says, Take nothing with you. Huh. Are you sure, Jesus? I, it, what am I going to wear? What about at least deodorant? I don't know. He says, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, which referred to sort of a traveling bag that you'd keep some of those kinds of things in, nor bread, don't even take food with you, nor money, and do not have two tunics, just just what you're wearing. And this is a, a really odd instruction. And if I'm a disciple, I'm like, okay, now now you're really stretching me. How do I do this? I I, I need to plan for this. I need to take food along. I need to take some money. What's going to happen if? How many times do we not serve God because of what if? What if this happens? Well, what if my safety is threatened? What if my security is threatened? You know, what if I'm not going to be comfortable? And Jesus here is saying, trust in my provision. Let us see there is trust in God's provision to minister. Now, now I need to, to weigh in on this. This is not an absolute command for how we minister every time. We actually do send our missions teams, for those of you parents sending your kids, we send them with some food, for instance. And, and in fact, later on in Luke chapter 22, Jesus refers to this and, and he helps us understand that this isn't an all-time thing. This is something he was trying to teach at that time. Because in Luke 22, he says to the disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And that, that was the lesson he wanted to teach. You can trust God to provide for you. He said, you didn't lack anything. And then Jesus said, 
But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who had no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And so we see sometimes Jesus sent them out and said, you just need to go. You need to go. Trust me. And other times he said, no, we, we need provision. And, and so why is he doing this here in, in verse 3? It's a really interesting statement. He's not doing this just to be arbitrary or just to be mean. He is deliberately trying to teach them what they need to know at that time. And the first thing is he's teaching dependence on God. He's teaching dependence on God. And you've heard me talk about this for everyone that teaches on Sunday morning. For everyone that ministers, we come with a mindset of, I need God to do what I'm doing this morning. I need the Holy Spirit to work through me. And I need to be aware of how the Holy Spirit's directing and who He's encouraging me to talk to. I I don't care if you're working with infants all the way to all ages, we need to be dependent on God as we minister. And he's teaching them that in a very physical way. He's saying God will supply. Everything about this instruction teaches dependence. Their authority is dependent on God. We saw that in verse 1. Their needs will be met by God. The direction of where they're going is given by God, by Jesus. And so he's challenging them to be dependent on God in everything they do. You know, that's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us that live comfortable lives. And, and, and really, when we are, are used to a ministry, we get into routines, and it's easy to do ministry sometimes because we've done it for, for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But we need to be aware of our dependence on God. Dependence on God also helps us take risks. And I know, I know probably half of you are risk takers and half of you aren't. And <laughs> I'm a risk taker. I, I love new things, trying new things. And you guys sometimes I know are along for the ride. <laughs> but we see God work and, and we can do that because we're dependent on God for the power. And we're dependent on God for that strength. What is he going to do? And I, I think there's some other things that Jesus is teaching by doing this too. Another thing is he's, he's showing them the need is urgent. We don't have time to, to prepare for this for a few months. The, the harvest is ready. Go. Go through all Galilee and, and preach the gospel and care for people. I think this also tests motives. It also tests motives. Am I really about this mission or is this a, a, an extra thing in my life? See, when, when, when we are challenged to sacrifice for something, we're challenged whether we really believe that, whether we really think we should do that. And so they're challenged to sacrifice, and he's testing their motives. Will you trust me? Will you, will you be about this mission even when you don't have all your ducks in a row? Even when you don't have everything planned and your suitcase isn't packed to where everything is in its nice little square, will you still go? You know, I I think he also does this to show the people being taught that the disciples had pure motives. At the time, your itinerant preachers, they would go around and preach and they would take a lot of money. And it was a chance to make a lot of money. And so with his disciples, he doesn't even want that, that look. He doesn't want that mistake. He says, don't take anything. Don't. It's not about having a nice Hummer camel. In fact, there was a rabbinic rule of the time, and and we think that this probably paralleled that rule, that you couldn't enter the temple precincts to minister with staff, shoes, and a money bag. 
And the, the symbolic reason was to avoid any appearance of, of being part of another business or doing business, that we should be abandoned to the service of the Lord, absorbed in the service of the Lord. What a great illustration. We should be absorbed and abandoned to the service of the Lord. You know, this, this speaks so directly against the health and wealth heresies that are going around our country today. I was listening to a podcast this week with Kosti Hinn, who is a, a wonderful Bible-believing, gospel-believing pastor, and his uncle is Benny Hinn, who, um, and, and who, who is health and wealth and, and just gaining all kinds of money through the gospel. And he shares this story about how he grew up and he thought that was normal. He thought the $10,000 suites were normal. And he thought the, the Hummers and the other cars and this opulent lifestyle of, of, of everything else and jets. And then he began to read the Bible. And he's like, oh, this isn't what this teaches. And you read passages like this where Jesus says, oh, it's not about the money. Don't even take money. Don't even take food. And he gradually changed, and now he is just an advocate for the gospel and for, for, for the truth of God's word. We must be careful. The mission is so important that personal comfort is inconsequential. You catch that? The mission, if we are on mission, the mission is so important that personal comfort is inconsequential. It is just not important. And I know that's not a popular message in our culture today. But we are called to share the gospel and to love people and care for their needs. Even at personal cost. Verse 4 goes on in letter D in your notes. is see ministry as entering into life with people. It's another really interesting statement. Jesus says, in whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And, and what he's saying is you come into a new town... And you find a house that's willing to house you. And, and the people were very hospitable people for a time. And, and you know, you got a few days. You got a certain number of days. And then eventually they would start to drop hands that hey, it's time for you to go. But they were incredibly hospitable. And Jesus says, whatever house opens up, stay there. And, and don't depart from there until you depart from the city. And so the idea is when you, when you, when you go to that house, you stay there your entire time of the city. For several reasons. One is he wants them to live with the people he's ministering to. This is not guerrilla warfare if I go in and share the gospel and go back to my safety. No, he's saying live with them, love them, care about them because the the gospel is that important. Enter life with them. But also I think it prevents another thing that would have been so damaging to the gospel. What if they're there a day or two and then a nicer house opens up with a bigger room, maybe a little stone jacuzzi in the back? What happens if they start moving around for the best location in the city? They destroy their witness. They destroy the testimony of the gospel. Now it's about the stuff and the things and the the material aspects of it rather than the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. And so Jesus says, stay there. Because of the the whole welcome philosophy of, of three days and then that your welcome would start to wear out, it also probably served to move them along to a variety of villages and spread the gospel to more places. And so then in verse six, 5 and 6, we see what happened. 
In 5, we see another instruction. Whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And we see the importance of their response again. And if they don't respond well, you shake off the dust and you leave, which was a sign of God's judgment on them. In fact, again, it helps us to understand the culture of the time. Jews, when they went to Gentile towns, they would come back in and shake off the dust because they didn't want to be defiled. So Jesus is saying, this is great. He's saying, do that to the Jewish towns that don't receive the gospel. Because that would have been an eye-opener to them that they are now under God's judgment. It's not about race. It's not about Jew-Gentile. It's about who believes in Jesus or not. That's the unifying factor. And how they receive Jesus. And then we see that they're, they're, that God's work in ministry in 6. And they're to believe that, and we are to believe that God will work in ministry. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And we see that Jesus' discipleship to teach them and then to equip them and to send has amazing results. People are getting saved. People are following Christ. People are being healed and helped. And now it's not just Jesus doing this, but it's 13 people doing this. And the ministry has spread. They were going to do ministry as Jesus' representatives. Simple story. And it's so easy for us to say, that is great for the disciples. And we forget that Jesus has, has this in His Word to instruct us, to train us, to correct us. Because we are His disciples. Are we joining Him in His mission to proclaim the Gospel, to help people, to love people, That is a mission worth living for. And one of the things we see here, because this is in the context of discipleship, discipleship always involves mission. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not be about His mission. Do you catch that? And I hope that steps on my toes and your toes. We cannot be disciples of Christ and not be about His mission. Because if we're not about His mission, we are no longer following His teaching. We are no longer copying His example. That's not discipleship. So we are called to be on mission. In the next few verses, Luke gives sort of an interlude before the next story with the disciples. And we get to see some of the effect that that this is having on Herod. Herod the Tetrarch in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. So, so remember, this is the guy that had John the Baptist. And Luke hasn't said this yet, but we know from the other Gospels that he had had John the Baptist's head taken off. And so he, he thought that would stop the message. And then he's hearing about Jesus. And now there's 13 people. This problem's spreading. This is an issue because his power is threatened. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Yeah, I bet. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. He saw John's head on a platter. That might have been troubling enough. Others were saying by some in verse 8 that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And all of these have the common thread of being prophetic times for the Messiah coming, for the king coming. All of these would have been a threat for him. Herod said, John I beheaded. Pretty sure it's not John. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. 
all kinds of thoughts about why did he want to see Jesus, whether it's to mock him, figure out if it was was real, or to harm him in some way. But the point is that the results of ministry, the results of God's disciples being on mission, is Herod had to find out who Jesus is. It, it, It was a challenge. He was confronted with who is Jesus. And when we're on mission, when we... Are, are allowing the Spirit to work through us, and we're, we're seeing God do amazing things, people around us will say, what is going on? Ha- have any of you ever had someone say, okay, what's different about you? How you're handling a situation? Yeah, right? That's what's happening here. Because when we have the peace of God that passes all understanding, when, when we are able to trust Him in the most dis- difficult and despairing of circumstances, when we are able to come alongside and love people that no one else wants to love because culture might view them as outcasts and we still care and we still love, people will notice and they'll say, why are you doing that? Who is this that's causing this? And what an opportunity for us. Herod sees the expanding buzz. He sees that there's all kinds of tweets about this man and his disciples. Maybe not. And he asked the same question the disciples asked on the boat. Who is this? He asked the same question that next week with Pastor AJ, Jesus is going to ask Peter. Who am I? And that's the question that we must answer. It's the right question. Who is Jesus? Because if he's God and his claims are true that we are sinners in need of a great Savior, then we need to follow him. We need to follow him. We get to the next story in point number three. Jesus challenges disciples to always be on mission. Jesus challenges disciples to always be on mission. As we read this, look for the powerful example that Jesus sets of compassion and powerful in action when he feeds this crowd who is interrupting his plans, interrupting his disciples' plans. Let's see how they handle that. In verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. So they've just come back from their mission. They've been out two by two. They've seen God work in amazing ways. Remember, it said people were accepting the teaching and people were being healed. And so they've got stories to tell. And they all come back together. And and he, being Jesus, took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And we know from the other gospels that there's just this press of people. And Jesus like, we got to get away. We need to rest for a minute. But let's debrief a little bit. And he's, he's trying to teach them that. Now, Bethsaida is um, probably about four or five miles from Capernaum. Do we have a map up? Hey, uh, you're awesome. Um, I forgot to get the little laser pointer. But if you look up to the upper left of the Sea of Galilee, do you see Capernaum? That's the base of operations, probably where Jesus is when, when, this, when they return to him. But if you go up to the right, in fact, you see two Bethsaidas. We're not quite sure where it is. They found some evidence it could be on the sea there, but also the shoreline could have been different, so it could be set back. But it's four or five miles away. And, and, and if you went out of the little town of Bethsaida, this was a pretty desolate place. And so Jesus says, let's, let's go get away. Let's go debrief. In verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now, they probably saw which direction the boat was going, if they were on a boat... Um, and, and they go around the shore and they get there to meet them. 
When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now imagine if you're one of the disciples and you're exhausted. I know how some of you get, are when you get back from a week mission trip. And you're like, boom. And, and it's like raising the dead. It's, you're just tired because you've been giving and giving and giving and pouring out. And Jesus is sensitive to that. And so the disciples are like, finally some rest. We get away. We get to figure all this out. We have so much to say. And they get off the boat and there's 5,000, probably more like 10,000 people standing there. If I'm a disciple, I'm like, really? Jesus, just send them away. Send them away. They'll come back tomorrow. If they walked this far, they'll walk again tomorrow. We need some time. But look at how Jesus responded in 11. And he welcomed them. He didn't say he tolerated them. He didn't say he put up with it. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. He did the two things that were his mission. He preached the word and he loved the people. And he did this when everyone's tired, they're trying to get out. This was an interruption. This was a, a break in their plans. I know some of you are planners. And I know if anything gets into that calendar, that Google calendar that you weren't planning on, it just irritates you for weeks. And we love you. And we need you. But that's what's happening. This interruption comes. And and Jesus and the disciples have this, this moment where what do we do? What do we do with this interruption? And we need to learn from what Jesus did and welcome interruptions. Some of you won't even write that in. (laughs) Welcome interruptions by making compassion a priority over personal needs. When I'm upset about being interrupted, it is about my personal needs usually. It's about my plans and what I wanted. I would love to say I do really well at this, and I don't. Especially if I'm resting at home, and one of my kids, or two or three of my kids... (laughs) decide to to interrupt dad and i'm working on this dad i i i don't know i don't know what to do the toilet paper's out put a new one in i was sleeping i know i'm not the only one and god's working with me on this but we do that in life with interruptions and and we've got to stop seeing interruptions as interruptions you know, this is, this is something where Jesus is, is coming along and, and he welcomes them. There's no sense of irritation. Yes, their rest is interrupted. But it's a divine opportunity. It's a divine opportunity. This is about being on mission all the time. We don't take a break from loving people. We don't take a break from caring about the gospel and wanting people's souls to spend eternity with our Savior in heaven rather than I getting a nap. And Jesus is teaching this. And this is the next step of the disciples' teaching, that you did a great thing going out, but it doesn't stop. When you're about a mission, you are completely all in and about that mission. See, if we've dedicated our lives to mission, ministry is not an interruption. It's our purpose. It's an opportunity And so we need to take these interruptions and think of them as what is God trying to do here? What is God trying to do? You're you're on your way out to your car and a neighbor comes by 
and, and is in tears. And you're like, I'm going to be late to the soccer game. What if you spent a moment with the neighbor and prayed with them and saw that as an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to love them, to care about them, to eventually be able to share the gospel with them? You know, some of this, just a practical thing to do is if we can start to build a little more space in our schedules for interruptions, that is a huge help. Because, yeah, when we cram our schedule where every minute is backed up against the next, and, and again, this is I'm working on this too because I, I want to be efficient and get as much as I can in in a day. But when we do that, we don't leave space for ministry. And we get frustrated with interruptions. You know, to, to pastors, as, as pastors, we talk a lot about thinking what to think of people that, that call or come into the office. And, and so many times, pastor, we can get into this mode where we're like, those are interruptions. No, that's why we're pastors. That's the ministry. The other stuff we're doing, we can do anytime. But that's true for all of us. How do we think of interruptions? And if you use that irritation that we naturally feel as a motivation to ask what is God trying to do here, that will change your perspective. That'll change your perspective. And we're going to start opening ourselves up to all kinds of new ministry opportunities you didn't know you had. With neighbors, with coworkers, with with reaching out and being able to share the good news with people. And so Jesus starts by showing them an example of compassion, of welcoming, even when the disciples probably didn't feel like it. In fact, we know that from the other Gospels. And so the teaching is going on and and people are are all around hearing about the kingdom of God and the gospel and people are being healed. And we get to verse 12. And and in verse 12, now the day was beginning to wear away. The day began to wear away. And the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we're here in a desolate place. This is somewhat of a reasonable request, but, but most commentaries felt like the tone here was a little, bit, a little bit chastising Jesus, a little bit pushing Jesus. They're hungry. There's no McDonald's. There's no Taco Bell. There's not even a food establishment. And so, so we got to send them away. They need food. And, and the feeling is they're sort of done. They're sort of done. And when we're tired and we're done, it's really easy to make excuses about why we don't press on in ministry. But remember the lessons from the first story. God's the one that gives the strength for ministry. God's the one that empowers for ministry. So if I say I'm done, now I'm denying his power and his strength. I'm doing it on my own. And so Jesus answered in one of the more direct answers that he has given in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And that's placed in an emphatic position in the original language. Give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Yeah, don't come after Jesus with chastisement. <laughs> don't come after him that his plans aren't right. Because he just, he says, okay, no. No, this is what you need to do. And you need to provide. And, and the obvious question for the disciples is, we have no food. And we're going to find out that one of them had found five loaves and two fishes from a little boy's lunch. But that's hardly enough for a group of 5,000 men, which could have been 10, 15,000 people by the time you added women and children. 
And one of the points here is there's a difference between Jesus' attitude and the disciples' attitude. Compare them. Think about this. Jesus saw a need and had compassion and wanted to meet the need. The disciples saw the need and wanted to send people home to meet their own need. That's the comparison. And so let her be there in your notes. If we, if we have to sum that up, look for opportunities to see God work through you to meet needs. Look for opportunities to see God work through you to meet needs. Look for them. Seek them out. Don't just take advantage of opportunities that come your way. And what was really interesting to me is as we as an elder board prayed this morning for the morning, one of the elders prayed that point and they hadn't heard my point. So I'm like, that's, that's weird. No, that's the Holy Spirit. We need to be actively engaging and looking for what opportunities does God have me to meet a need? What opportunities does He have me to share the gospel? We need to be willing to interrupt our schedules and take advantage of those. Think about this. The Messiah, who is God and came to save souls, die on the cross, and defeat death at the resurrection, took time to care for people. He cared that they were hungry. And he met physical needs. See, the mission is to preach the gospel and care for the people. And when we're just about the gospel and we forget to love and care for people and meet needs, we're missing half of the mission that Jesus wants us to do. We're missing what Jesus has called us to do. I love a story that D.L. Moody told. He had children coming from everywhere around Chicago to a Sunday school and And one boy was asked why he came so far. Why did you come so far to come to Moody Sunday School? And his reply was really profound. He said, they love a fellow over there. And that became the bridge and the door to teaching this young boy the gospel and him coming to Christ and giving his life to Christ. The story goes on. And and the rest of the story is fairly familiar. I wanted to camp a little bit on the part that maybe wasn't so familiar. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all the people, but they didn't have money. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. He's organizing. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And so we see this trust, this trust in God to meet the people's needs. And and as we understand it, the, the disciples are still needing to minister when they're tired, so we need to trust God to meet our needs. But he comes and Jesus takes what's there. And this was a real miracle. Some have said, well, maybe Jesus had a little hidden cave with a stash of food behind him. No. Some have said, well, maybe the little boy's generosity convinced others to actually pull their lunches out of their tunics and, and share them. No, this was a miracle. And, and there's a number of ways we know it. Number one, Jesus had the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, said the blessing. And this would have been a normal blessing that, that a, a dad would have given or part of the thanksgiving that happened before the meal. Blessed art thou who bringest forth bread from the earth. And then people would have answered, Amen. But it says that he broke it and then he gave it, right? He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the word for gave there is actually a change of tense to an imperfect, which means he gave and kept giving. It just kept going. This was a miracle. 
So he just keeps breaking off bread. And the next disciple comes and he keeps breaking off bread. And it just keeps going. This was a creation miracle. As Jesus created food out of nothing. He is meeting needs out of the power of God. And in fact, we go on and we see um, he gave the blessing, he broke the loaves, and he gave. Very similar wording, by the way, to the Lord's Supper. And many people think this is sort of um, a symbol of what's to come. And they all ate in verse 17 and were satisfied. I love that phrase. They all ate, all 10,000 of them, and they were satisfied. Some, another theory that people say to try to get out of the miracle is that he just took the five loaves and broke it into like 10,000 little bites, little bits. I'm not satisfied with a little bit of bread, sorry. They ate and were satisfied. This was a full meal. This was a good meal. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. What an amazing provision by God. He provided the means for the disciples to minister. He provided them the strength to minister. We need to be dependent on God because He is just waiting to provide the energy and the strength and the words and the ability for you to minister. For you to talk to that person that doesn't know Christ. That one that you have the sticker for. That you've said, I'm praying for that person. Now's the time to be on mission and start looking for opportunities to reach into that person's life and to share the most amazing news they will ever hear that Jesus Christ saves and He forgives sin and He gives an eternity with Him in in heaven. Simple story. It's important as we go through the Gospels to see the stories together that this is part of Jesus' training to the disciples of how to minister, how to be on mission, how to always be on mission, how to have compassion along with truth. Because both are essential. And a challenge to us. Am I about the truth of the gospel? Am I about the compassion of my Savior? Both need to be there. In the end this morning, I hope it's a call for us to be on mission. To dedicate our lives to this. More than any Olympic sport more than any cause, this is our cause. And this is a cause worth living for. Yes, it's a cause worth dying for, but it's a cause worth giving our life for. Pastor Andrew and I were talking this week and he brought up Nathan Hale and I thought that is just a perfect story to, to, to illustrate someone that was, was talking about giving his life for something and, and for a cause. And on the morning of September 22nd, 1776 in Manhattan, 21-year-old Nathan Hale was marched along Post Road to the Park of Artillery, which was next to a public house called the Dove Tavern to be hung as a British spy. I'm sorry, hung by the British as a spy. Get my sides right here. The British captain said this about him. He asked for writing materials, which I furnished him. He wrote two letters, one to his mother and one to a brother officer. He was shortly after summoned to the gallows, but a few persons were around him. Yet his characteristic dying words were remembered. He said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. He had a cause. He had a mission 
And he was willing to give his life for it, and he was willing to give more for it. That is an example of how we should be for the gospel, how we should be for the mission of Christ, for the Great Commission. I only regret that I have one life to give, to live for this mission, for people to know the gospel and for me to care for them and show them who Jesus is. Follow the disciples. Learn who Jesus is and commit to making that our life's mission. This week, what opportunities are you going to have? What opportunities are you going to have to care for someone, to meet a need, to share the gospel? And my challenge to you, we we do great at meeting each other's needs in here. What opportunities are you going to have to meet a need outside of this room? And look for it this week. And if we all commit to looking for it this week, I would bet we're going to come back with stories next week of 10, 20, 30 different ways we've met needs outside of this building. And then let's see what that starts to do for the gospel, what doors it opens up for the gospel. Let's follow the disciples on their missionary journey. And as we walk out the doors, go on ours. And let's be about mission. Let's pray. Lord God, give us opportunities this week and help us not to miss them. Lord, interrupt us this week. Bother our schedules in a way where you are creating opportunities to share the gospel and to care about people. Lord, help us this week to be about mission. And Lord, I'm excited to see what you do through that and build that excitement and help us to come back next week and talk about it and to see what you're doing. Lord, you are handing off your work to us. You did to the disciples and then on through the generations to us. May we be faithful to that. May we give our one life to the cause, fully and completely, all in. In Jesus' name, amen.